You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us in this ESG Perspectives series, where in our Malaysia office of Trowers and Hamlins, we're talking to people in a range of industries about the ESG agenda and what the challenges and opportunities are. I'm delighted to welcome back today Danielle Welsh-Rose, who is an ESG investment director for the APAC region for the asset manager Aberdeen. Danielle, thank you again for joining us and also my fellow partner in the Malaysia office, Elias Mubarak. We had a really interesting conversation in the first podcast and agreed there was a lot more for us to tackle. So delighted to to be with you both again today and, and thanks again for your time. Daniel, just going back to your points around sort of active shareholder ownership and investor base and, and, and the governance around that really, is a really interesting one. And I think there's a traditional view for sure around how returns are measured. And that's obviously been purely financial. And it's quite interesting that, that some of the focus around returns on investment going beyond that are now being looked at. You know, I was, I was reflecting on this after our earlier conversation, and I look back at some of the the fiduciary duties directors have in, in various markets. And the UK is a good example where there's a, a general duty to, to act in a way that they consider would be most likely to uh, promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members as a whole. And, and, and th- so this was 2006, this was enacted and, and drafted much earlier than that. So, so well over 15 years ago, but even then it was looking at long-term consequences of decisions um, factors included interests of company employees, impact of, of the company's operations on, on the community and the environment. So the, the sort of codification, if you like, of, of the need to factor ESG into business decisions has always been there, but well, not always been there, but been there for some time now. But I think for directors and board members, sometimes there can be a bit of a, a struggle to weigh up competing priorities and the traditional sort of priority of investors for economic returns. So how have you, you know, as an organization, Aberdeen, seen ESG metrics start to feature in, in returns on investments and kind of how that can develop? I think that's a, a really important area to sort of help drive better corporate governance. There's a lot in that question. <laughs> I'm <gonna take> <laughs> yes, to sorry, it I'm being awful there. Please. Yeah. No, it's good. It's a, I mean, this is such a meaty topic. It's just a, mm. it's difficult to kind of pin down um, specific. So, so firstly, I'd say that I mean, you know, over my time in this industry, that that discussion around fiduciary duty has just been going on and on and on and on. And I'm very glad that it's finally kind of quietened down a bit um, from what it was. And it always seemed a bit nonsensical to me in a way because, you know, the, the way I've always looked at these issues around sustainability and ESG for, you know, from an investment perspective is that, that, that these issues are material. Um, you know, if you're looking at them properly, they are material. And... You know, climate change is a classic, and then that's now it's now you know widely considered to be a material financial issue. But you know, how could it not be when you're talking about kind of inputs to an organisation? You're talking about outputs. And you're talking about reputational um, you know, issues. Talking about potential future litigation. It's, there's a whole range of aspects to this. You know, companies that aren't really understanding climate change and understanding the impacts of business strategy and their business model and over various timeframes are I would argue not actually doing their job as directors yeah. and, and managers of those companies. So, you know, it always seemed a little of a, a bit of a distraction to me that that conversation. So I'm glad it's sort of died down a little bit. 
Yeah, so I, you know, this is a conversation that comes up. It's it's so this I've taken this role on um, across APAC only in the last couple of years, and so before that, I've been very much Australia focused, and so it was a little bit um, jarring in a way to to hear. There's still a lot of conversations from various client bases across various markets around. Well, you know, you can do ESG or you can have returns, but you certainly can't have both. And then, you know, really focusing in on show us the proof that it doesn't cost me money because at the end of the day, that's what you know, I invest to make money for myself and meet my investment objectives. So that's just been a little, a bit interesting. But um, mm. it's also difficult to answer in a way because, you know, as you've already pointed out, that ESG is a humongously large topic that basically covers, I'm completely paraphrasing, but it covers everything, you know. It's like yes, it's difficult. yeah, yeah. Um, to be considered an ESG expert because it actually means that you know very little about very many things and not a lot about anything because <laughs> you have to cover the field and it's impossible. Yeah. Um, but it's the same when we talk about, you know, does ESG you know, contribute to alpha or will it cost money? It's ESG is not the one thing. And when you talk about ESG investing, it's certainly not the one thing. It covers all sorts of kind of strategies. And so often the studies that have been done just bucket everything together. So you've got these kind of ethical investment strategies that are very binary sort of negative exclusionary process. You might have a passive portfolio that just cuts off certain sectors or certain companies and then carries on as per normal apart from that. And then but on the other end of the scale, you might have a highly active impact style strategy that's very concentrated and yet those two things are compared, uh, put in the same bucket and then compared against whatever the, the benchmark is. So I think the question around will ESG cost me money, I think it's definitely valid and we should always be trying to answer that question, always looking at the evidence and the data and improving that data set. But it's also not a nuanced enough question. So that's not an answer to your question. It's just a, <laughs> a point I've been pondering. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, it also matters underneath that how ESG is integrated. So we all talk about, you know, we integrate ESG, but are you just purchasing um, company ratings from one of the big providers and just sort of basing your investment decisions off that? Or are you doing a lot of work internally around proprietary, um, I guess, research, so gathering all that information on data points that you think are material and then, you know, actively engaging with the company and trying to understand the company's position on those things? You know, the, the outcomes in terms of portfolio construction from those two different approaches will be very different as well. So, We've come from, I think, a place where a lot of the ESG integration was just purchasing these ratings off, off external providers, which does have a place. I don't mean to um, mm. you know, degrade that at all, but you know, I think we're moving to recognition that you know, ESG is not one thing and that really to have a sophisticated approach to it, you do probably need to take a more of a proprietary bespoke view of things and you know it's something that your investment teams need to all be upskilled in and to be looking at as part of the standard process is not something that's sort of tacked on to the end or just done by your ESG specialist and so you know when your energy analyst is looking at you know, their stocks they should be always asking the company about their net zero commitments and their transition plan and their short-term milestones and how remuneration is always not tied to that and the governance processes around that and they're not really doing their job as an analyst if they're not asking those questions in a way where they understand the answers and can you know challenge I guess the company on those so you know, I think we're, we're moving to a more sophisticated, nuanced way of doing things, which I think is is excellent. Um, but, you know, we still do have a challenge around, um, I think we are talking before this call about uh, impact measurement. Um, yes. And that's, you know, 
that's an area I think that we're all moving towards. So there's been this focus in the past on, I guess, the inputs into a company or an investment um, and so that focus on ESG risk and materiality, but not as much focus on what is the impact of the company at the other end on the world. So that's an output. Um, you know, and some impact investing is looking at that now, obviously, but I think we'll also see a shift more to more of the mainstream um, investments and looking at impacts. We've just got a, a challenge globally about how to measure that in a way that's accurate and meaningful, I guess. Kind of points to the... You know, it, it, it's a journey, isn't it? I mean, the, the speed of change is, is huge, but it's it's kind of, it's obviously, it's long-term, it's evolving uh, and it, it'll it'll develop and it'll de- develop at different speeds in, in, in different parts of the world and different regions. And there's obviously different challenges around that. You know, a lot of the people we talk to or, or a lot of the people who'll be listening might be quite new to ESG in, in a business context and kind of understanding where to start because although there's a lot to do for a lot of businesses there's even more to do in, in kind of starting out and I, do you think there is a, a a distinction between whether it's between regions you know whether it's sort of southeast asia and and sort of you know you having sort of come to the role from an australia focused apac what are the kind of some of the key differentials you you might be seeing or are there any i think yes and no so if you're talking about the sustainability thematics or ESG thematics, I think you know, a lot of them are at the top level quite universal. So climate change is clearly something that will impact everyone um, in different ways, but you know, it's a big systemic global issue, so that's definitely universal. Governance is a theme that applies everywhere, but again, applies differently. Um, but I think for, for this part of the world, so Southeast Asia, there's some issues I think that are possibly a little bit more of a focal point, a bit more acute here. So clearly modern slavery is something that all of us have been talking about for some time in this region. Um, human rights more broadly, we've got issues, and I know this is of particular interest in Malaysia in particular around labour rights, workers' rights. Mm-hmm. That's something that, that is of a focus in this area. Bribery and corruption in some markets here is a little bit more of a heightened risk, as is the board level kind of structure and composition and skill set. So there's still some, you know, highly concentrated kind of um, family groups on boards and, you know, whether those skill sets are appropriate to lead that sort of company. So there's, there's questions around that. Clearly, um, biodiversity loss and deforestation, uh, an issue in this region, it's, it's one of those funny sort of, I think, I was reading somewhere, I think that in Southeast Asia, 50% of the land cover is uh, of the land is forested still, which is a really high proportion. Therefore, there's a disproportionately uh, large proportion, meaning that we're a lot of the world's plant and animal and, and ocean species in this region. And so, you know, that's something that's a little bit different. And I think you know, when you talk about climate change, the physical impacts of climate change are a lot, you know, I think this, this region is a lot more exposed to some of those um, you know, more intense storms and, and things like that. And then when you think about climate change in terms of the energy supply, this region does have a much higher or more carbon intensive energy supply as well. So then there's, I guess, heightened issues around the energy transition. And for this region in particular, around the whole concept of a just transitions, how do we transition into this sort of clean energy future, but without exacerbating inequalities and, and leaving communities yeah. and workers behind as well? I mean, that's something that that is, you know, a huge consideration for this area. So you know, there's that, and I think then on a 
or for me at least a, a little less of an interesting <laughs> angle when it is around the corporate reporting on ESG. And so I know there's um, you know been a, a lot of regulatory movement in various markets in the region to strengthen sort of ESG reporting, corporate reporting frameworks and things like that. And so there's definitely been, we've seen a huge improvement in reporting and quality of reporting, but there is still issues around data availability and transparency and accuracy. Um, but also it's that kind of next leap in sophistication around, you know, yes, you're reporting on ESG metrics, but you know, is there a link? Have you made the link between that and corporate strategy and business strategy mm-hmm. and, and you know, how you're sort of moving forward as a business? And so it's that kind of materiality element that, that is missing sometimes as well. So, yeah. and that's not, I mean, those issues yeah. are not necessarily just just in this region, but that is what we're seeing in Southeast Asia. I've got to say hats off for being able to succinctly answer what is a, a book's worth of, of, of topic there, <laughs> the number of these a number of these questions. I mean, it's really, really fascinating because there, there's so much opportunity within that as well. And, you know, as you were saying, some of them are bigger issues and some of them are, you know, that, that point around inequality and so on. There might be regional issues, but they're probably multinational or global solutions to those issues. But then there are, are genuinely regional issues for which there is opportunity to change and change quite quite fast in, in some of the, like you say, ESG is too broad. But when it comes to the social and the governance and working practices and diversity in boards and the, the speed at which businesses can kind of evolve to really progress, um, to stand out as businesses that are developing in a way that in international institutional investment will be attracted towards, which I know is, is a big kind of question. It's kind of what sometimes there is that what's in it for me. And obviously, we're talking in principles, it goes a lot further than that. And we could talk forever. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and ask a, a narrower question on this. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> uh, which kind of, let's see if it is narrow. It might not be, you might say that's not narrow at all. But t- tying back in earlier with what you, so you, you were talking about how analysts need to be, you know, looking at the, their portfolios and how change is being implemented. But when, when Aberdeen invests in emerging markets, for example, or, or, or works with businesses in emerging markets and developing, developing nations, how do you you know, can you can you talk a little bit about how you engage with those portfolio businesses to kind of help them grapple with all of this? And and obviously, there's the the statements you 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 give to your portfolio companies about what you expect. But in the markets where it's it's newer and it's more opportunity and, and challenge, how do you work with them to achieve that change? And it's a huge part of our process is um, active ownership approach and and this corporate engagement. It's something that we, in particular, in this region in Asia Pacific, have. You know, our teams across the region have a huge focus on on engaging with companies to the point where we, you know, we're actively hiring people who can speak in the local languages so that they can speak to these companies in a very sophisticated way. So for us, having that direct engagement with companies is clearly important. Um, there's a couple of reasons that we do it, and in this region in particular, because of the data gaps and uh, issues around transparency, you know, with some of the, the corporates that we're investing in or thinking of investing in, having those corporate engagements to to get more understanding around some of the data and transparency issues is you know clearly a big part of what we do and also as my previous comments around it's a window to the corporate culture which gives you uh, insights into sort of how the business runs more holistically I think it's very important but for us it's also a way that we can um, help the company as well particularly in these as you said in these um, more emerging markets so Sometimes you know, the company hasn't reported on something or hasn't considered an issue just because it's it's never 
sort of come across their desks before or something they've thought about. Mm. And so you know, some of these conversations that our analysts have for these companies is around bringing those issues to light and explaining to them why for us as an investor it's really important that, that they should be across these issues or have processes in place or be reporting on them. And so we often use those conversations to encourage Firstly, you know, transparency and reporting of whatever metric or data point that we're interested in, but also um, to help that company um, if if it's required to change the way they do things. So sometimes some of our teams describe it as engaging for alpha. So ultimately, we're looking at helping the company change to a point where it's you know obviously a better investment for us and our clients ultimately as well. And so. There is a lot of effort, um, particularly in some of the Asian markets, that goes into these conversations. And those conversations not just once off there, you know, a relationship that um, continues over time as well. Danielle Elias, that's been really, really interesting. And what we're going to do is conclude the conversation in, in a third part to this series. So, Danielle, incredibly grateful to you for your time and continuing insights. And what I'm really interested to hear more about in the third part is Aberdeen's own Sustainability Institute and your insights into key areas of the ESG agenda for businesses in in Southeast Asia over the coming 12 months and beyond. Thank you again for your time today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.